0: All right, so we're going to continue on our story of God series. Um, I'm excited because I really love, I don't know man, I really love the story. I really appreciated Jim filling in last minute for me last week. Um, Nine o'clock at night is never the best time to find out you're doing a sermon the next morning, especially when you've never done it before in that regard. But he's a teacher, so it's good. I appreciate it. And I love just your, it's just very similar to how we're trying to do this narrative. Um, The reason, and I've talked about this before, the reason we wanted to go through the story of God is that it really helps find out where do we fit in this story, but also it kind of shows that when we talk about the idea of the gospel, it's ultimately this, this good news of what God has done. And it culminates with Jesus, but it's this larger story that we're a part of. And so, um, after two weeks ago, uh, Lori came up and talked to me, and I was just super encouraged, by the way, by all that stuff, and I actually went and was like, I should find that painting that she talked to me about and share it with everybody, because I was talking about it, but like, I never really, I loved it. So anyway, I'm going to pop this picture up here. By way of reminder, also, if, if you miss any week, obviously people are missing. We do have, we put all of our messages into audio form in a podcast. So if you go to either Apple or Spotify, if you look for the logo, the Christ Community logo, and just type in Christ Community, it should pop up there. So you'll, if you want to listen, you know, just what Jim had to say, it was I put it on there. Um, and so... All these stories, if you miss one, that's where you're going to be able to find those. But what we talked about last week is we started the idea of the story of God and how God made the world and he made uh, human beings as image bearers of God. And the purpose ultimately of image was to communicate something about God to the rest of the world. And one of the aspects of image is this idea of a relationship with the creator of the universe. Now this here is an icon made in the 1400s by an artist named Andrei Ruplov, he's Russian. And one of the things that's beautiful about this story, it's called The Divine Dance, but it's this idea, this is actually titled The Trinity, okay? And so what we have here is this picture of, of um, father, son, and spirit. And we could spend a whole time just talking of the beauty of this picture, just the idea of their preferring one another. You see that this aspect is the father's you know, preferring the son. And this idea that in the Trinity is this submission and this idea of giving and showing love and pouring out love to one another. Now, one thing that's cool about this painting is that if you see right here this little square, uh, they say that when this was originally made in its original form, right there was a mirror. And the idea would be that as you were, the viewer were looking at this, you would see a picture of yourself. And it was this idea that as you see even the... the the gesturing of, of each side, you're invited to the table. That God is inviting you in to this dance. You're invited into this relationship that he longs to have with you. That he's essentially what God has done is as God has existed in this relationship, in this triune relationship for all of eternity, that God being love, he's inviting you in to enjoy himself that he's inviting you into this relationship. He's essentially opening up the circle that he has existed in for all of time and he's inviting human beings in. And what I appreciate about what Laurie said is that that posture of invite, that the creator of the world is inviting us into this loving relationship so that he can share himself with us is beautiful. And I think it's very different than how... I feel the Father is portrayed how God is portrayed to a lot of, both in the traditional Christian churches, the churches sometimes even I've grown up in, and, and the church that's predominant in our city. That, that often it's this idea that, that you invite God into your life, is one side of it, or it's this idea that, that God is not sharing anything with you, that, that you, if you do not perform to God's standard, then you're rejected. Or you got to earn it back. We would never, often these churches, we would never say that if you don't do, then you're not saved. They would say you're saved, but you're not acceptable, right? Like that my acceptance to God so often is dependent upon my performance. And so I wanted to, to point out this picture as as Lord reminded me of because it's such a beautiful picture. And this, would, what, what I would see throughout Scripture is this idea of God inviting humanity to enjoy himself and inviting humanity to be a part of what he's doing just like he's inviting us to be a part of what he's doing. And as image bearers, as God made this perfect world, as he's invited humans into that space, his heart was that as we lived out on earth, we'd be communicating about this this beauty about God to the rest of the world, and we'd be inviting people into our lives as God has invited us in. That we'd be sharing ourselves with one another. That was God's ultimate design for humanity. And as we're going to see today, was broken at least partially and uh, we're going to see kind of the result of the world breaking so i'm going to read genesis chapter 3 verse 1 through 13 very familiar to anybody that's been walking with jesus for any amount of time but it's good for us to talk through it genesis 3 1 it says now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the lord god had made and he said to the woman Did God actually say that you shall not eat of the tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord, God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called out to the man and he said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. God said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree that I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman that you gave me, she gave me the fruit and I ate. And then the Lord God said to the woman, what, if, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, it was the serpent deceived me and I ate. And then God goes on and gives out the curse. And so, what we have here is that we have humans, As like a brief recap, are made in the image of God. This idea of image is this idea of responsibility we talked about, this idea of representation, on um, its basis form, this idea of, of receiving from God and sharing with others. Uh, in this perfect state, creation being in this perfect state, God was king of the world and human beings were representing that kingship, essentially this kingdom. But relationally, humans were perfect in relationship with each other, but they were also in perfect relationship with God. And that was primarily because they were fully acceptable and they were fully approved, essentially. They had full access and full acceptance, essentially, right? There was they were perfect, right? So this perfect God could dwell with them. And because of that they were able to have full access. God physically, literally, walked in the garden with human beings. Which is crazy to talk about, think about, understand. He even had a sound about him when he walked that They recognized and hid from. Um, So they had this unhindered access. And God gave them everything they could possibly need, everything that they could possibly want. And they were in perfect relationship with each other. And I mentioned this a couple weeks ago. I feel like the picture of of pure relationship is no better described than here, this idea of naked and unashamed, right? Fully exposed, fully known, no ashamed. And this was the state that we find the world. And God gave one prohibition. <clears throat> do not eat of the tree in the middle of the garden that was called the tree of good and evil, the tree of good and bad. Whatever it may have, the translation but works out. But this was the tree. This was the one thing. Then he said, if you do this, you're going to die. If you eat of it. Which leads to the question, why did God put a tree that would kill people in the middle of the garden? Right? Fair question. And there's a lot of different reasons people put out there, but the predominant understanding is this idea that if God gave you one choice, it's not love, right? If you're like, you can love me or you can love me. You can obey me or you can obey me. Like, there's no opportunity, right? And so the idea of the tree of the knowledge of good and of evil was this opportunity for human beings to trust God. They had the option to not obey. And I think that so often we have reduced following Jesus to obeying and not obeying. But what it was, as we're going to see, is they were trusting. Did they believe that when God said, don't do this, this would happen? Did they believe that? Or are they going to believe somebody else? It has been, from the beginning of time, an aspect of faith. And so, with the idea of love, love Never forces allegiance. And so, by giving them an opportunity to say, I'm not going to trust you, I'm not going to follow you, I'm not going to love you, um, that's what a loving God would do, right? And so, this tree is an opportunity to trust God, to reject God, whatever you may call. And so, immediately as this story is going on, everything's perfect, everything's wonderful. And then shows up a talking snake, which, I mean, I get why some people think that following Jesus, or like, the Bible's crazy, because he got talking snakes, and like, there's a lot of weird stuff that happens right? So the serpent rolls in. We find out something immediately about this creature is that A, it could talk, which who knows, maybe all the animals talked back then. It was like Narnia. (laughs) Who knows, right? But we also find that this creature is against God. He's against God's rule and he's against human beings. We find out immediately that this creature is against God and um, he gives these lies. And I think it's important for us to just camp out a little bit on this because we will see that these lies that were given thousands of years ago are still present today. Okay, He starts off with the first thing with questioning what God said. He says, did God say you should not eat it, the tree of the garden? He's questioning, causing, asking the woman to question what God said. Doubting it maybe a little bit. Did he really say that? You know? And what is so fascinating to me is Eve's response is the most human response, especially when it comes to religion, I've ever seen. She says, God did say that you should not eat of the tree of good and evil, but then she added a prohibition that God never said. She said, nor should you touch it. We love making law. Love it. Okay? it's our jam we go hey and here's the thing it comes from a good space i don't want to disobey this so i'm going to add these other things to protect myself from that and like eve we're going we all know the end of the story law it just inflames our heart against god like the idea of she wasn't trusting what god god's definition of good and evil she was wanting to make, this kind of started making her own law. So the first human-made law was created at the very beginning. And I would imagine that as she took of that thing and she held it in her hand, and just stared at it, she's like, nothing's happening. Right? But she hadn't eaten it, which is what God actually said. So the second thing we see the serpent do is that he contradicts what God said. He literally lies where he said, you shall not die. He contradicts what God has declared. Right? Now keep in mind what this tree is called. This tree is called the tree, the knowledge of good and evil. This idea of of the definition of what is good and what is evil, like this knowledge that we have, it's huge. And he's saying, and he is basically saying, God said this is bad, but it's actually not that bad. And then he questions why God said it, which I think gets to the heart of all of us at times. He's like, listen, God is trying to keep something good from you. do you realize that? God knows that when you eat of this, you'll be like Him, knowing good and evil. This idea that God is saying, God is not letting you have this thing because He's keeping it from you. In that moment, he is questioning God's goodness. He's causing this woman to question the goodness of God. And she's tempting her, which is the temptation of humans since this moment, of being like God. Of taking God's place, whether it be in our own life, the life of others. Like you talked about, like, dominating over people, like, questioning God. God's goodness, and then being like him, which we find even in the serpent's temptation is that the knowledge of good and evil is a God attribute. That God is the only one ultimately that can define good and evil and that he has defined it and that being like God is having that attribute in some regard. And so um, you see Adam and Eve are placed with two options. They can either trust God's definition of good and evil Or, they can define good and evil on their own terms, believing the lie, and take the fruit. And when we break it down that way, we realize that those are our options too. That every day, every moment, we are faced with the option of trusting God's definition of what is good and what is bad. Or, defining what is good and bad on our own terms and running after that. At the end of day, that is the origin of all sin and all wickedness. It's humans' definition of good and evil. That country's definition of good and evil. This community's definition of good and evil. My neighbor's definition of good and evil. This idea that we are taking on a, a responsibility, essentially, an attribute that only was designed for God. And obviously, all we've done is run it into the ground. Right? Wars are fought, people die. It's this constant opportunity that we're faced with of believing, is God good? God is, maybe we're saying God is not good. God is keeping this good thing from me. Um, or God's declared this thing not good, and I'm like, well, is it that bad? You know, um, It hasn't killed me yet. Is it really that bad? You know, uh, they may have not even know what death was, but they didn't instantly fall down dead, but their, their soul, their spirit started dying immediately, right? We see divisions, we see anger, we see war, we see people killing and willing to die for what they believe is good and what they believe is wrong. And I think that that reality is never more evident than right now. At least in my lifetime. I have never seen the absolute hatred of human beings, neighbors, because of their definition of good and their definition of evil. And how weird it is that we live in a time where what I define as good and and bad is literally flip-flop to my neighbor and and the hatred and the division. Maybe it's because we were never supposed to have that responsibility. And because with that responsibility, all we do is make a mess of things. And so, obviously, we know the story, right? Eve believes these lies. She rebels against God's rule. She takes the fruit and she eats it. What I find interesting is that the text really brings out this idea that it appealed to her senses. Saw it. There's a desire to make ones wise. Like there was this idea that it really was a. It wasn't like had worms crawling. Out. It was beautiful, right? It was didn't look ugly. Like and that's one of the things that. Um, my middle daughter Daisy, is, uh, very unique in how she sees the world. And I love her, but she is a, she is, and I remember early on. She said this thing, we were watching something, and she says, why, we're watching a TV program, I think, she goes, why, does, why do they do, do portray evil as, like, scary? She goes, isn't it more scary when it's beautiful? Yeah. Yeah, it is. Absolutely. And evil is always portrayed as dark and scary, but you know what? The most sinister is gorgeous, right? And so, she takes it, she eats it, I know she always gets the blame but I love that this little verse is always part of verse. She turns to her husband next to her, gives him the fruit. Um, the idea of human beings relationship being severed is something that we've seen we experience right but that's the first thing that the image of God the image bearers was distorted shame entered in hiding Um, and what's interesting is they didn't fail to become image bearers like we're not not image bearers anymore we still have dignity and worth because we're human beings, but that image that we're some, often communicating is distorted. And sometimes we're imaging God in a better way, sometimes we're imaging something else. We are always communicating something about, we, about the very thing we worship. Like, we're, we can't stop worshiping. We can't stop imaging, right? But there's a distortion that takes place now that wasn't present early on. So we see that that relationship was damaged, but then the next thing we see is that the relationship with God was severed there was this aspect that now they're hiding from God which we have also been doing from the beginning of time right we see hiding, we see shame God being this perfect being is now going to be we, we can't be in that same relationship anymore or we'd be destroyed we see blame entering in, blaming God blaming others, right, like you gave me the woman it's, her, you know, it's your fault, it's like wow, right, we see that it's at this moment that human beings are no longer fully accepted and have, no longer have full access to God, as they once did. And so instantly after that, we see death, disease, decay, destruction, and everything else enter into the world. That's good. So this idea of... <clears throat> Of this relationship with God being broken and everything else. Look at this. Do you guys can't even see me? I'm so glad, dude. We're so chill here. Jim's <laughs> having a good time. I love it. This is gonna be the best podcast ever. <laughs> like, everybody's be like, "What is happening right now?" You're like, you should watch it. He's going back and forth. Um, maybe we'll keep my train of thought. Let's go. We see the results of this. I don't think anything I'm saying is not obvious, right? Like we see the idea of broken relationships with each other, with people in our community, family. We see the struggle that we've had with God at times, the broken relationship, the times we have with him. And ultimately it results in this curse that we're seeing even today. Like the fact that COVID is freaking running rampant is a result of the curse. The world is broken. It's not the way it's supposed to be. And I think that, and I've mentioned this before, I think that pain and suffering is the biggest, the absolute biggest proclamation of God. Because where someone would say, "If there is a good God, why does He allow this stuff happening?" And I would say, "If we're just blobs of evolved beings, shouldn't we welcome death? Shouldn't we welcome a disease that takes out the compromise? Shouldn't we welcome a disease that takes out the weak? Shouldn't we, shouldn't we welcome that? Isn't the the, the race getting stronger?" Shouldn't we welcome, as if, if? but there's something about every human being, doesn't matter what culture, where we mourn death. We, we're saddened by, by young people leaving. We're saddened by these things because we're saying what? This isn't the way it's supposed to be. This shouldn't happen. Who told you that? Who told us on all the different continents that that isn't the way it should be? It's because we were not created for this. God's design wasn't this. It's a result of this world breaking. The biggest idea of the curse was we see that the good, that God had declared this good, and this good, and this good, and that very good, the good has been distorted. And before, and I love this, before Adam and Eve are forced out of the garden, out of essentially God's presence, God does give a promise. He promises that from Eve's offspring, an heir would come and he would undo everything that came from their rebellion. And even when this was written, this was so extraordinary that a woman's heir would even be mentioned. God's promise was for Eve's seed, Eve's offspring, which was really ultimately pointing us to Mary, right? I mean, a reader back then would have been like, wait, what? It's Adam's. It's like, No. It's pointing us to... So that, like, I love how the Old Testament authors, like the Holy Spirit ultimately, because when Moses ran it, he didn't know, gives us these hints of what's to come. It's absolutely beautiful. I love the Old Testament. It's so much beauty pointing us to Christ. This promise would be one that would undo the curse, restore how things were, And this promise ends up getting repeated in different forms throughout the Old Testament. Some commentators would call it the scarlet thread. We always see this aspect of the promise going through until Christ comes. The second thing that God does in giving us this preview of what's to come, it says that he covers their nakedness. He gives them, covers it with what? Skins. We see death. The first thing killed was animals to cover Adam and Eve. And it sets the tone, this idea that because of sin, something must die, right? And in this case, it's these animals. And just as the clothes could only cover their nakedness, so sacrifice can only cover sin. It cannot remove it. And so it's because of the rebellion and it's these consequences, we quickly see if we had time to start Going through the rest of Genesis, immediately distortion, corruption, oppression, abuse begins. We have Cain and Abel, murder. We have one of uh, Cain's descendants suddenly decides polygamy is a good idea, right? And then he kills a guy because he bad to him. And then we keep going. And then we see the world becoming corrupt and God, not all bad, right? God chooses Noah. I love Genesis 6.8. It says, Noah found favor in the eyes of God. We see grace enter the scene. And it says after that Noah obeyed, but it was said that God saw Noah and he found favor. And he's like, this is the guy I'm going I'm to give this blessing. And we see this idea of God choosing the insignificant, the people that maybe aren't the best option throughout the rest of time. And Babel happens, right? Rebellion on earth. There's advancement in the technology and growth. And the heart of man comes to the surface and says, let us make a name for ourselves, which is still present to this day and of course God comes and through common language he just makes everybody have different languages and separates it and I find it fascinating that we are to the point in history for the first time ever where we are language no longer separates us and in a lot of ways Babel is being rebuilt right which we see at the end talked about which is a whole nother whole nother thing and so we have the perfect world the world's divided Image bears are distorted. Relationships are broken. Humans have sin. It affects and distorts everything. Death and suffering reigns, which leads to the question, which is why I love, as we go through this story, well then, how will things be made right? You have to keep in mind, we have the whole story. But as the, the those that were, was Jesus was coming, this is all they had. They had up to Malachi. They had... Just disappointment and pain. And it led to them saying, well, how will things be made right? We see these hints of grace and we see Abraham being chosen. We're going to look at that next week. And and we see these things, but it leads us to go, how will things be made right? Like this isn't the end of the story. Yes. What I love is that what we see, and we're going to see down the road, but it's always good as a reminder. We see that the true image bearer does come. The perfect image image of God. And what's interesting is that that perfect image too was disfigured. Too was distorted. In fact, disfigured to the point where you couldn't even recognize he was a human. right? The image bearer was disfigured by sin, but not his. And he was killed by sin, but not his. What's also fascinating is that his relationship with God was also severed for the first time in all of history the beautiful dance was broken up the son was separated from the father cosmically for the first time ever where he cries out my God my God why have you forsaken me and what's interesting is that it was the sin of the world he didn't hide from God it says that God hid from him he experienced ultimate suffering. No, like to be separated from God, and like true separation, which is something that one day people will experience, but nobody to this point has ever experienced pure separation from God. Jesus experienced that for all of us. He was cursed. He took on the curse that we deserve, the image bearer, the true image bearer. But he, we know how the story ends. He conquered death. He conquered sin. He rose on the third day and he reigns, and because of him, we are able, although still a little distorted, to image him again because he's given us his spirit to share. He shared it with us. He just shared himself with us so that we can share him with others. And in these moments, we we can communicate his kingship, and we can communicate his love, and we can share these things. Good has been, in a lot of ways, able to happen again it says every good and perfect gift comes from above the father of lights right like anything we have in our life that's good is from god and we can share those things and so obviously that's the good news that's the end of the story ultimately but for until then until one day when god fully makes everything right he's gonna sin's gonna be gone death's gonna be gone it's all gonna be gone but until then what do we do I think it's good to be reminded that God is still inviting us to his table. If that's not the posture that we're coming into, I want to pray that God will bring us to that space. If when you see the table, essentially, I know we're using a metaphor here, but if when you see the table, if it's fear, like if it's fear and shame, then know that Jesus died for that. Whatever it is that's causing that. Confess that, like that, God wants the posture. He's inviting you to this table to share himself with you. Don't shy away from that. Even in your brokenness, even in your shame, come to the table. That's one of the reasons I love communion. Is is that when I put it here, it was that picture that was in my head. That it's an invitation to come to the table. Wherever you're at knowing that even if you have jacked up stuff, you can come and say, Jesus, thank you that your body broke in for me, your blood shed for me. has made me fully acceptable and fully um, have full access to you and I'm fully loved and I'm forgiven because of you and you alone. And as the skins covered the nakedness of Adam and Eve, your blood and your righteousness covers me so I can come before your presence fully known and fully loved. So I'd say, come and to the table. I think another thing that we can work and and respond in is embracing what God has declared as good. Even if it's contrary to what we declare as good. And also, and this is something that God needs to work in my heart, is I need to dislike more of the things that God says are bad. I am not good at that. Some things I'm like, yeah. Yeah, that's I'm not you know? Like, I just need to, and, and I think that that's what happens. It's not like, the cool part is, is that as we come to the table, our tastes change, right? As we're partaking of God's table, we start acquiring taste for what he's offering, and we start disliking the things that he is not, at, that's not at his table. And so these things, I would say that I'm talking about, the idea of, of embracing what God's declared good, or disliking what God's declared evil, that's not, that's something that those are almost um, barometers of how, of how much we're enjoying Jesus, right? It's not like, I'm not going to like this anymore, oh, right? It's like, that doesn't work. But it's this idea that we're going, as I enjoy God, my tastes change and I acquire taste for different things and other things become gross. And then the last thing is as we're enjoying God, That we're sharing this love that He has given us with other people. That as we've been invited to the table, we're inviting people to our table. Both metaphorically and literally, maybe, you know. That we're sharing God with others. And we're sharing with them the same grace that we've received. And I think that that's something that's always a, a challenge. Is that often it's easy to show grace to people we feel that deserve it or that show us grace. And the people that are like, you know, not as easy. But how do we know we're not that person? Right? And even if, and to God, essentially, everybody is like, it's falling short, right? And God continually invites us in. And so we want to have that same aspect as we live under God's kingship. We live a life in a way that's saying, I am not the king and I'm not God. He's the king. And our life, hopefully, as God works these truths in us, our life hopefully points to God saying, I live for the king. He's, he's the king and I'm not. Like he declares us good. I'm, I'm, and we're inviting people into that space. So with that, we're going to have a little more time of, of reflection and music and we can respond to God. Obviously, we don't have the table today. It would have been perfect to have the table, but let's not all get sick. That'd be awesome. But we can come, and we can, I think, even in our hearts, come to the table and have that posture of invite. That God is inviting you to enjoy Himself right now. Even in music, when you sing or you don't sing, stand, don't stand, whatever the case may be, we're responding to the goodness and love of God. So let's pray. Father.